Good morning and welcome to Entrepreneur Realities, the podcast of the Venture Lab of the Munich Technical University. My name is Antoine Leboyer. I'm the Managing Director of the Software and AI Toom Venture Lab. We are joined today by Canadian sales entrepreneur Bruce Linton. Bruce is the former CEO and co-chair of Martello Technology, where I'm also a member of the board. He's better known in Canada as the former CEO and chairman and founder of Canopy Growth, which became a two-digit billion market cap legal cannabis company. He's run multiple companies, a serial investor, and he's also active in many charities. Bruce was at conference for Cannabis and Psychedelics Investment in London, uh, the latter being a new source of uh, his focus right now, and we took advantage of him being in Europe to interview him. Bruce, welcome to Entrepreneurialities. Hey, good to be here, Antoine. Bruce, did I introduce you correctly? Yeah, I guess so. Like They sound like such lofty titles, you know, chairman and CEO. But really, when you're the founder, uh, one of the things that the governance experts will tell you is that you should not have the same person be the chairman as the CEO. And I agree with that after the first person who starts the company, which is the CEO founder. And the reason I, I insist on being chairman and CEO when I found a company is when I found it, I want to create it in a certain way that's uh, stylized on my approach. And I want the board to support the entrepreneur, question the entrepreneur, but I don't have a reporting structure where effectively the board is my boss, more like uh, a team. And so when those titles, when you introduce me, it's not accidental um, that I insist on when I started, I will stay as long as I'm chairman and CEO. I want to introduce these because you have been um, a founder, you've run uh, tech companies, you've run non-tech companies, yeah. and you've also been on the investing side. This was more what I wanted to describe. Yeah, yeah and you know, in a sense, you and I had a discussion more than a year ago that being a CEO is relatively easy. You only have to be good at two things, right? And it was your pitch. You just have to be good at sales and one other thing, whatever that happens to be that you're good at, whether it's coding, chemistry, finance structuring, whatever, but you have to be good at sales. And so when I start companies, one of the things, so the reason Canopy went from zero to I think our peak market cap was about 23 billion uh, in about five and a half years um, was because we were a tech company that grew marijuana. You said, well, how could that be? Well, if you think about many files, if you're going to work in a world which is full of regulation and public policy as your guidance, which I like, you have regulators and regulators need reporting. And so if you want to grow quickly, we were in 16 countries after five years and we had uh, five locations in Canada producing cannabis and selling it. One of the big things is not losing cannabis, chain of custody, the capability to provide accurate reports on what you produce, where it is, and that you have no chance of loss or theft. And so what we were was a cannabis company based on the technology perspective, which is everything had to be cloud hosted, open APIs. In running that company, we went through three ERP systems in six years. You say, oh, good God, Bruce, why are you so stupid that you didn't pick the right one at first? Well, the first one that would allow us to, we could use was called Zero, and it was the only one that would work with us. And then you went over time where Microsoft accepted that it was a legal business and you could start to use their platform, and then you could move to SAP. And so like, we were very much a tech company growing cannabis. And I, I belabored a bit in that I think one of the things that people have to bring to an idea is a methodology. And so cannabis was an idea, but if you didn't have a methodology, you were like the 99% of the players out there stuck talking about a flower. 
rather than talking about a process to go global? You and I have discussed many times on the importance of, of growth for tech companies. So company, tech company, as you and I agree, either grew or disappear. Yeah. Well, I think you can almost, what's the single best solution for every kind of company? Increase your top line at a reasonably rapid rate. And rapid is defined by relationship to others in the sector. So if you're in a sector growing at 5%, but you're taking market share because you're therefore growing at 6 or 7%, that is, that is a solution for any space. And if, you know, so it's just, um, I, I don't say like grow at all costs, but if you can't have a growth strategy, um, you might as well just put the CFO in charge because what they're going to do is just keep cutting costs until things uh, don't, you know, the lines quit crossing between uh, uh, revenue and expenses and that you're making a loss. They'll just keep cutting the expenses. Um, I don't like that kind of business. I like the kind where you actually grow top line every quarter. Many of the students uh, that we work here at Tomb, they always have questions like how to get started. So how did you get started? So for me, um, you know, we're involved in a tech company together, but I'm not particularly super amazing at um, every element of technology and creating it. Uh, I've had a ton of people who've worked with me for me who are coders, engineers, whatever, um, statisticians, you name it, but I can't do any of those jobs. So what would I be in? The reason I get in is public policy. Sounds boring, right? But it's not. So I didn't start a cannabis company because I like cannabis. I started a cannabis company because the public policy governing it was obviously stupid and going to change and began doing so in Canada. And then it started going globally where rather than just trying to criminalize it, why not regulate it, tax it, make money and regulate and then educate people why they should or shouldn't use it. And so I like public policy. The reason I got into tech was, and I keep coming back to it, is as things keep changing. So I first got into it when um, there were only national telecom providers, right? If you wanted to use a anything in Brit in England, you went to BT, or you were in New York, you would go to 9X. Well, when they started having uh, the divestiture competition permitted and the breaking up of these monopolies, I went to tech because I said, "Wow, are you kidding me? They're actually going to have a war." And I can be involved in the supply of armaments to a war that basically has service providers that have been around almost as long as the countries have been around, who are now finally going to have a super aggressive competitors. Let's do that. And like the reason I'm back in this stuff now is I don't care if it's transformation of teams or Zoom. The, the fabric of how we work is massively changed super overnight. And, and when we think about 5G, everybody doesn't get as excited as they should, but I think they should. Like all of a sudden, Everything can be an enabled device, which could change everything we comprehend and how we work. So I get drawn in as the technology slash public policy changes. And that's a great wave for creating businesses because usually behind a public policy, there's this huge pent up capability. And as soon as they change the policy, you can launch a business and it propels you forward. Now, the approach that you have, uh, there are two co-chair at the company. Uh, that we've mentioned, yeah, uh, we you you are very complementary. Can you mention you know you, you're in other words, um, you are less of a technologist, but you yeah. look at a number of other elements. Can you describe these dynamic and and what you you focus on? Yeah, so if you want to grow and outpace your competitor, one of the things you can do is have your cost of capital be lower than theirs. So, well, what do you mean? Like a dollar is worth less than a dollar? No, no, no. 
what you can do is position yourself so that you're more desirable to investors, which means that you trade at a higher multiple. So if you're trading on a top line, multiples of total revenue, multiples of a bottom line, if it exists, if you're trading on a theory of a position in a market, explain it better. So that if, if, for, if $1 of investment buys less of your company than your competitors, that means you're, you're getting cheaper money. You're giving away less of your company. And if you do that repeatedly and effectively and continue to backfill your company faster than your competitor because you use the cheaper money better, before you know it, you don't have a competitor you can see because you've been accumulating more and more investment, putting it into the right places, which turn into more rapid growth. And then when you look behind you, you can't even see this competitor anymore because they're giving away all their company and taking longer to get the cash and not spending it as effectively. And before you know it, they're not even in your rearview mirror. So one of the things I always focus on is, are we positioned? It's a bit like sailing. Have I got it just right? So I'm going to catch this and go the fastest and the best. And if you do that, the capital markets love you, meaning institutional investors start piling up. The trend trading platform, one of the things people never look at, that they, they'll say, well, the share price is $3. Well, what the hell does that mean? What you want to care is how much is the share price, how many shares are there equals the market cap. Then when you're a publicly traded company, what you really want to have is a high volume, rapidly trading stock. And the reason is if I say, Antoine, would you like to buy some of my company? Your question should be, do I like the company? Yes. If I'm wrong, can I sell my position in a timely fashion because there's a high volume of trading? And if there's not a high volume of trading and you buy in, you can't get out. So that restricts the number of people who want to buy in. So what you have to do is constantly say, how do I encourage trading? Well, that's a function of communication through what I call earned media. This could be called earned media. Being on, I was just asked if I would go on a UK a BBC channel at uh, 12.45 my time to talk about what Mr. Biden is going to do in cannabis. And the reason I do that is any company I'm involved with then gets the benefit of my positioning on that topic. So earned media means constantly showing up to be part of the news cycle because that's why retail shareholders buy your stock. And so that's part of what I focus on where Terry puts much more focus to things like the evolution of 5G, where we can fit into, you know, uh, Terry is the chairman. We have to, yeah, he was, to yeah, he's the co chairman with me, and he's very, very, very busy with and active in the telecom area, still has been for 50 years. He's very active with technology platforms, gets super excited talking about, you know, when we're going to manage the, this session border control device, et cetera. I just want to know what does that translate into uh, access to new users? How much does that increase our total addressable market? Like in tech, I find people don't use some of the words that I like, TAM, total addressable market. I want to know exactly how much of the pie is available to us because it's never all of it. Like in, in Martello, we do quite a lot with Microsoft Teams, but that doesn't mean everybody who uses Teams is a target for us because maybe some are too big, some are too small. What's our TAM? And then what are you doing to eat it? So in other words, um, you are looking at a number of, you understand what's the limit of a transactions as a culture. This is something that you may understand the technology, you may understand the market, you understand the important communication, but the thing that you try, yeah, that you that strikes me compared to many um, board members that I have met or chair that I have met is that you are a strict uh, disciplinarian on key numbers, which are characters of the growth and growth enablers. Yeah, you know, and, and people forget, like they think they're going to be on a board because 
they'll get some stock and they'll get maybe a little pay and they have a couple of meetings a year where they go somewhere that's nice. That's not why you're on a board. You are there to improve the results for the shareholders, period. And so if you're having a meeting and the meeting goes for two hours, if it strays more than 15 minutes out of that whole time away from topics that result in the shareholders potentially having a better return, you're not doing your job. And like our shareholders at Martello, they're not very happy right now because the, the share price has gone down. And it's gone down because revenues have not gone up at the rate that they would expect in this whole transformation to teams. Now that can be fixed and it will we will see it go up. But um, as a board, one of the things that we keep coming to, as you know, is if we're not having an increasing share price and we're not having a high volume of trading, you know, the thing trades a couple thousand shares a day at, you know, pennies. So what you end up having is like somebody, the whole day's trading is like a thousand or $5,000 of value. Well, that won't turn into a good story. So the sequence is grow top line, tell the world why the top line is growing, world buys stock, stock transactions increase, price goes up because there's now more buyers interested. And the next thing you know, your cost of capital starts to go down, your ability to buy other companies goes up. Because here's a key word, if you're an entrepreneur, and I, I didn't like accounting, but if you're going to do transactions, they should almost always be accretive and not always explained as strategic. Accretive means that you're paying less for the thing you're buying per unit of whatever the measure is than you're traded at. So if we're trading at two times revenue, if I buy something at one and a half times revenue, it's accretive. If I buy it at three times revenue and I'm trading at two times re revenue, I will try to explain that it's strategic. Strategic isn't for sure. Accretive is for sure. And if you do too many strategic ones and too many of them are wrong, you lose all confidence in market. Now, you are looking at another new business, which is uh, uh, probably, you know, um, quite unusual, but linked with perceptions and with uh, regulation. You've been looking at psychedelics. Can you say a little more? Because... You started doing these before there was the Netflix uh, Michael Pollan uh, uh, video, as well as the article which was this week or last week in the technology section of uh, London's The Economist. And you've started on, on, on working on this before these guys basically legitimize quite a lot of, of what is psychedelics today. Yeah, so um, I was, uh, I found a canopy. And then I had uh, an American company put in about, in American dollars, about four and a half billion US dollars, quite a bit of money uh, for about 37% of the company. And um, after about nine months, um, you know, they, they wanted to run it their way and they didn't like my way anymore because I'm kind of my way. And so they fired me. And the first thing I looked at as soon as I was fired, I thought, man, the rules and governance policy around cannabis was is pretty dumb. Like it's almost like your grandparents told you Uh, just do it this way and never question it. But the governance around psychedelics, so think about um, magic mushrooms, psilocybin is a, the, the technical name, even LSD, some of these, the, the rules around that are absolutely nuts. Meaning, even if there are clinical trials running in, say, a place like Switzerland, somebody in America can't get at it because it's super banned. And my thought was that they're going to actually... Um, allow people to have whatever works because our ability to fix your mental state is terrible compared to your physical state. Like if you're lucky enough to have a heart attack, they know what to do. But if you're unlucky enough to have any kind of severe depression, anxiety, the diverse range of 
mental issues and, and mental health issues, they, there's, there's very ineffective tools. And so I thought the world's going to change. Clinically running programs will be very important. And so uh, I was first money into one called MindMed. And this thing went from, I literally, I wrote a pretty good sized check and then I went begging for other people to join us. Begging. And I had one investment banker, he said, Bruce, I know you want to fix my head, but trying to raise this money for MindMed, I have, I'd sooner have a hole in my head. He said, it's impossible. Nobody will give you guys money. And we raised and we raised. The next thing you know, this thing was trading at more than a billion dollars market cap, another unicorn. And it's just because being early, pushing on a logic, like, um, would you care? Suppose you had a, a cousin, a nephew, a kid, a brother who had gone through PTSD, a depressive state, whatever, and they were able to be remedied with something that used to be illegal five years ago, but went through clinical trials and became legal. And if it made them terrifically better, would you care that it was once prohibited? Or would you say, thank you for doing that work and helping save my family member? And so that's what propelled me into it. Uh, thankfully, I've not needed or used uh, for any uh, sort of treatment these products, but I thought they should be available. And um, now you're seeing the world change. Like there's an LSD trial operating in the US, first time in 60 years. The platform and the technology in the background for that was purchased out of a, a university in Switzerland. Yep. And that, the LSD was first started by Roche in Basel. Right. And so MindMed bought most of the intellectual property and a lot of the capabilities from Basel. And the effect is a huge head start. So I, I just like areas where, you know what, um, one of my advice things to people is if they ever get a, if there's ever a job offered to them where there's a big going away ceremony for the, the person who ran the company before, and they're giving that person like a gold watch and stuff, don't take the job. That, that I would sooner take the job where the person who's been doing it before is gone to jail. Like they're a criminal, they're terrible. Because... What you shouldn't do is what's popular and perfect. What you should do is probably the thing that not everybody wants to do and isn't perfect. And so the part of the reason I like psychedelics is the reason I like cannabis is the reason I get drawn into these things is if everyone's doing it before me, that means your competition's unreasonably high. Your access to capital is going to be super difficult. But if you find an area that's not as popular, not part of like if it was in a newspaper, and I know people don't read newspapers anymore about me, but like. I like the things that are on like page 17, not the page, page one stuff. You know what I mean? If it's, if it's back on page 17, it's still a little bit unsure. That's more my section. How different is, is this to be an entrepreneur in Canada from the US or from Europe? Well, there's two parts to it. So we have a, a number of methods you can raise capital that are quite effective in Canada. And it's because we historically had a mining sector. And if you have mining, you know, extraction, These guys are typically never going to dig a hole. They're going to tell you a story, but they need a little cash. And so they made the system very easy to raise small amounts of initial cash in Canada, which is good. The downside of being from Canada is we don't have an infrastructure to get to be a very big company without going to U.S. exchanges. Culturally, um, I always thought I should live in someplace like Singapore or Hong Kong or somewhere where, where when you're an entrepreneur and you go to a, a gala, a dinner party, if you're a successful entrepreneur at those things, Everybody wants to talk to you. They don't want to talk to the politician. They don't want to talk to the lawyer, the doctor. They want to talk to the entrepreneur. And in Canada, I would say like entrepreneurs are third or fourth in line in terms of who people want to speak to. Like, so we're, we are on page 17. Yeah. Yeah. We're on page 17. And you know, I'll, I'll give an example. So um, 
I, I'm not harking about Canopy, but in Canopy, I brought about uh, in, in foreign direct investment, about $6 billion Canadian dollars of foreign direct investment into Canada over a period of about three years, $6 billion. You know what the government response was? Zero. No interest in why. No, now imagine if you, you came up with something anywhere else in anything and you brought $6 billion of foreign direct investment and mainly landing in remote towns and areas that had no foreign direct investment at all in the prior years. But in Canada, the entrepreneur doing that isn't as exciting as the government bureaucrat handing out maybe uh, $3,000 a month during COVID. So I would say being an entrepreneur in Canada isn't as easy as in America. In America, people love entrepreneurs. Even if you fail 10 times, you can still become the president for crying out loud. Um, in Canada, that's not the case. I think Europe is um, a little bit similar, but Europe is changing, and this is what. But this is why they have me right now in in Germany. Well, I, you know, I, one of the most uh, active investors, smartest minds, most aggressive entrepreneurs in the psychedelic space is a, a German guy, Christian Engelmeyer, and he came from tech, and then he went to psychedelics. This guy is a ripper, and he's super aggressive entrepreneur. You'd think he's coming from, uh, you know his approach and his aggressiveness and his thoughtfulness, you'd think he's coming out of Boston or New York, but he's coming out of, uh, I think, uh, actually, I think he, one of the companies I talked to yesterday is uh, based in uh, Munich, Muchen, and, and, and they're aggressive. So I love to see that come out of Europe. Well, um, when are you coming to visit us? Uh, you know, it's funny. They said, can you get over here this month? I said, well, yeah, I think I can. So I'll probably come over at the end of October. Um, Part of the thing is if you're ever going to get involved with a company that you don't directly run, never do it without at least directly going and putting eyes on everything. And so they're sending me all the presentations, but then I like to walk around, put eyes on everything, talk to the cleaners, meet a few of the folks, make sure that it's actually as square as I think. Because if I take this to my network and I start explaining to people in the Sweden, you say Sweden, yeah, like Sweden's been one of my best hotbeds for investors. Like I've had the Swedish, what is it, sovereign fund investing in things. I've had like... Believe it or not, if you get on a, a small market like Sweden, you can have hundreds of millions of dollars in investment come to whatever you're working on. Now, I don't want to take this business to my Swedish network if I haven't put eyes on it. I'm not super comfortable that it's great. Well, um, do let us do let me know at least, and then we'll uh, we'll 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 show you what we are doing at the at the venture lab. For, I'm pumped. For I want to go around and actually see and hear. So you talk about AI and all these smart things. What I, I love that, but then I want to hear them translate it to, essentially, I find the best businesses take other people's existing markets. And so whatever you're doing there, I suspect, will disrupt existing income streams to other major players by seizing opportunities, by delivering something that's twice as good at half the price. And I love when that translation of the technology into twice as good at half the price, and we're going to steal all the income from XYZ company. That I love hearing that. I got a few ones I introduce you when you come. Let me ask the, the usual last questions, uh, which I ask uh, people we interview on the podcast. Do you have any advice for the listener, for our listeners, which are mostly, you know, students coming from uh, university? Yeah. So if you're the entrepreneur, it means you're the leader. To just insert the word leader. Now, if you're the leader, what kind of leader are you? And I'll use something current because uh, 
in three days in Canada, it's um, Thanksgiving. We don't do it the same time as Americans. So it's turkey and guests and family all accumulate to your house. And some leaders, entrepreneurs, if they were having Thanksgiving at their house, would operate this way. They would cook a beautiful meal. They would sit down and eat all they could before they allowed any of their guests to sit down and eat anything. They take everything, keep everything. They're greedy. They're gluttonous. There's other leaders who would say, everyone sit, and they would be the last to take the food because they want to be sure that everyone who's gathered is looked after properly. And so if you're the leader, meaning the entrepreneur, and you're running a company, you got to decide daily, am I taking everything first? Am I eating everything first? Is it all about me first? Or how much are you sharing? And I give that example in that I handed out more of Canopy than I kept. You say, what a crazy idiot you are. No, the reason it went up in value is because everybody had some. The cleaner to the VPs. And the effect of that sharing was that it multiplied the total value of the enterprise rather than containing at a lower value where I had 100% of a $100 million company versus having a good chunk of a $22 billion company. And so I, I think people, when they want to be an entrepreneur, should constantly in their mind say, I'm the leader. What kind of leader am I? I'm behaving in the way that I would want to be led, or am I getting greedy? Ruth, thank you very much. Thank you, man. We'll see you in um, München. Entrepreneur Reality is available on major podcast platform where you can find other inspiring presentations. Do subscribe if you like the podcast and want to hear more. Do give us a rating. Let your friend know about it. We look forward to having you for more entrepreneurial realities.